Um, last Sunday night, as most of you know, I was preaching in a church on an island uh, off the west coast of Scotland. And I found out later that night after I'd, I'd finished preaching that that evening I had been preaching to, uh, wait for this, I'd been preaching to Donald Trump's uh, first cousins. I think it was. They are members of, I think, members of uh, the church uh, that, that I'd been I'm preaching, and quite close to the family. That got me thinking. That got me thinking that that congregation that I was preaching in last week was probably uh, the only place in the United Kingdom where Donald Trump is not public enemy number one. Uh, is is that not right? Now, whether we agree with it or not, we just need to be on the internet for a moment or two to sense the kind of fear factor. Uh, surrounding Donald Trump's presidency. Is that not the case? Uh, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere kind of up in arms about the manner and the policies of uh, uh, America's latest commander-in-chief. Well, truth be told, that kind of sense of disquiet at political leadership, it isn't just reserved in America for Donald Trump. It's the same here. Is it not? We can be, as Christians, equally as, uh, as unsettled by our own political leadership. Because what have we witnessed over recent years? We've seen successive governments pursue, surely, what we would agree to be unbiblical agenda at various points. Is that not true? People pursuing what they see as progressive policies on the redefinition of marriage or the breaking down of what we would accept to be gender norms. We too as Christians in this country, we can be very uneasy at our political leaders. So all of that leads to a question, does it not? How do we as Christians respond to political leaders. Now, we've seen a lot of things. We've seen rallies recently against Donald Trump. We've, we've, we've seen even violence erupt in defiance and, and so forth. But wait a minute, what about us? What is a godly response to what you and I might perceive to be corrupt political leadership and rule? Well, this evening, we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, which is, I'll say, an eminently relevant portion of Scripture for us in the United Kingdom today. And what we see here, what we have before us in Ecclesiastes 8, is practical teaching. It is a very practical portion of God's words. And there is instruction here for how it is that you and I are to live seeking God's glory but doing that under secular rule. So, with these things said, I would ask you what I always ask you to do, and that is to please have your Bibles open here at Ecclesiastes 8. I'll give you the page number once again. It's 674. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Now, let me suggest we are told to do three things. The first is this, that we are to submit to our government's administration. You got it? That's the first thing that we see here. We are to submit to our government's administration. Now, 
if you look down at your Bibles for a moment, you'll notice that verse 1 here, if you look down, uh, verse 1, it, it, like some sort of hot air balloon is just kind of floating there in midair. Isn't it? Verse 1. Now, do you see why that is? Uh, I think people are not sure if verse 1 goes with what comes before it in chapter 7 or what comes after it in chapter 8. Eight, so they just have it sitting in the middle there. Now, what I think is happening in verse 1 is that Solomon is really appealing for the need for wisdom amongst the people of God when it comes to one particularly difficult situation. Okay, so what is that really difficult situation? Well, maybe you picked it up when Peter was reading the chapter. Did you pick up what the really difficult situation is here? Solomon in this chapter is talking about the sort of tyrannical, fierce, uh, ungodly rule of a king. And what I want you to see is the sort of nature of the rule. So to look at verse 3 with me, and notice what we're told about the rule here. We are told not to stand up against this king. Why? For he's going to do whatever he pleases. So you see what you're dealing with here? You're dealing with a kind of a selfish king, a kind of impulsive king, a guy who's ready to turn against anyone who might dare oppose him, right? You get the idea? Now it gets worse. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, No one can say to this king, "Uh, what are you doing? So do you see that he is self-centered, isn't he? And he's very kind of stubborn in the way that he rules. But I think it's actually... It's actually at the end of verse 9 where we get the best sense of this guy's rule. So if you look at the end of verse 9, do you see what's said? This king, and I think you've got to pay attention to the footnote in the NIV as well. This king, he lords it over others to, and it should be, to their hurt. So, so far, do you see what we're dealing with? We've got a corrupt political ruler. Maybe it sounds familiar because this is a brash man. This is an ungodly man, a ferocious man, and a man who pays no attention to any advice he gets. And it's a man who governs to the detriment of the people. So here's the thing. (laughs) Let me ask you, what advice do you think God's word is going to give us? If it's this sort of tyrant that is governing What sort of advice do you think God is going to give us tonight? Well, I'm telling you, it's about as counterintuitive and upside down as you could imagine. Because you see it in verse 2. Look at the beginning of verse 2. What does Solomon say to us? Look at it. We want to be up in arms. And he says, obey this man. Isn't that counterintuitive for us? I mean, God is saying, you know, here's this tyrant, this political ruler over the people of God. And, and God says, actually, do you know what? Submit. Submit to this man. Am I not right, friends, in saying that this goes against every fiber for being? I, um, I remember living in Scotland. I was worshipping alongside a Christian man. Good Christian man, but he, he was the biggest revolutionary that I have ever met. This guy sort of made 
Castro or Che Guevara look like a sort of right wing sort of you know, conservative guy, a real sort of come on comrades type of man, you know, and every weekend he would be out marching for various numbers of causes. Uh, and he's a Christian man. And, and he really saw it as his kind of Christian duty to try and revolt and rebel against secular authorities. He thought, right, no, I'm a Christian. I've, I've got to stand up to these people. And yet, what is God saying? He's saying, obey. He's saying, submit. And so that begs a question from you, I'm sure, and from me. And that is, why? And you know, if we see and if we sit under oppressive rule, why is it that the people of God, why is it that we would submit? Well, thankfully, we are given the answer as verse 2 carries on. So continue with me in verse 2. Look at it. Be the king's command, I say, why? Because you took an oath before God. Now, not easy to pin down exactly what's meant there. I think it's the idea of an oath of allegiance, that sort of thing. But you get the essence. Look, I, 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 I say this to you. Why is it that we can submit to these sorts of authorities? Why is it that we can obey corrupt political leadership? What do we know in here? We know that these people owe every ounce of their power to an almighty and awesome God. Is that not right? We know that these people, they ultimately stand before a God who has created the heavens and the earth. That's why we can obey. And in fact, you know what? It gets even bigger. It gets, it gets better than that. Because what do we know? How can we obey these people? Because we know that our God, he is actually using them for the good of his church. Is that not true? Is that not an amazing thing to think about? You think about Donald Trump, or you think about Theresa May, or it could have been Hillary Clinton, Jeremy Corbyn, whoever it is, God has identified the rulers of this age, and he is using them for the spiritual prosperity of his people. Now, I do think, before we move on, there is a qualification that has to be made here. I wonder if you see what it is. Let me ask you the question. And that's probably getting me arrested. (laughs) When do we not obey the king? When do we never obey our political authorities? We never obey if it means going against the Bible. And that's true, is it not? Scripture is not saying here, it's not demanding that we we can't talk and speak out against unbiblical policy. It's not saying that. It's not saying that we have to go uh, along with uh, unbiblical law in any way. It's not saying that. But you do see what God is saying here and what he says consistently through Scripture. What does God want from us in a circumstance like this? He wants us to try and live peaceably under even corrupt secular law. We see that time and again throughout Scripture. Do you believe me? Let me read to you 1 Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. It's quite dramatic, isn't it? What do we do? 
we submit to our government's administration. Okay. So we're given that instruction. Second instruction, same thing we're told to do, is that we are to trust in our God's justice. We're to trust in our God's justice. Okay, so we've, we've, we've seen something there of how we're supposed to, as Christians, respond to government and rulers. I think that, though, leaves uh, an obvious question unanswered. What about the wicked society that that government shapes and forms? Do you see what it means? One thing for us to say, right, okay, we understand how we're to react and respond to our rulers, but how are we to react and respond to the culture that the government has kind of shaped and formed and bred? Okay, you understand? Well, it's to that that Solomon uh, turns now. And what he does, he complains, first of all, I think, about the unfairness of society under corrupt rules. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm looking around just now, and most of you were here uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And now there's one or two visitors. Most of you were here. So maybe you'll remember that in Ecclesiastes, we looked at the prosperity of the wicked. Were you here for that sermon? The prosperity of the wicked. We looked at the fact that very often in this life, the righteous, they suffer and their lives are cut short. But that the wicked in this life, very often, God says, that they will thrive. And people who hate God will actually succeed and they will prosper. Well, here in Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon, he's complaining about the sheer, incredible extent to which the wicked seem to prosper in this age. And I want you to look at it in in verse 10. And I want you in verse 10 to see if you can work out the scene that Solomon is painting before you in, in verse 10. I'll give you a moment. Verse 10. Do you see what he's depicting here? I'll read it. He says, Ah, but then I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go from the holy place and they received praise in the cities. Where they just make, I'm asking, like, do you see the picture? Do you see what it is that's been painted before you? It is the funeral procession of a wicked, wicked, evil man. That's the scene that we're dealing with here. And did you notice where the the funeral procession begins? It begins in a holy place. Let's call it a church. And do you see the sense, the kind of atmosphere here? This is a wicked guy, but it's he's getting respect and regard, isn't he? It's his funeral procession, but there's people keeping on him all of this honor and all of this praise. Now, here's the thing. Do you see why Solomon is so cheesed off with this? Do you see why he's annoyed? Do you see the, the problem he's got with this? He, he cannot believe it. I mean, he's, he's seen that the wicked thrive in this age. They thrive when they're alive. But now look at it. He's saying they're even thriving as they are lowered into the ground. The wicked are even thriving in their funerals. And I think, friends, in here we can probably agree with that. Can we not? Let's take the big and obvious kind of examples for a moment. What about uh, Kim Jong-il? 
the former leader of North Korea. Have you ever read about that man's life? That man was a wicked man. He was a man who persecuted the Christian church. A wicked man. And yet, if you read about his life, he's a man who had it all and a lot of luxury and ease. And then what about his death? Well, here is a man who had 232 different people assigned to his funeral committee. And they were all charged with making sure that he got the greatest send-off from this earth. And there was a big state funeral procession, and it stretched for mile after mile. It took three long hours for that funeral procession to pass by. All for that wicked, wicked man. But then you can narrow it down and have little small examples too. Because what of an atheist funeral? You know, a, a, a person, let's say, who has spent their life decrying God. A person who hates Jesus. And because of that, a person who hates all that is holy, all that is good. They've spent their life rejecting God and rebelling against them and what happens in their death. You may have been there before. There will be a celebration of life, won't there? And people will be encouraged to wear uh, colorful clothing and uh, it'll be Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, is, is played in the Tannoy system. You see, wicked, even in their death, even as they're lowered into the ground, they seem to have it good. And so how does God want us to respond to that as his people? What is it that Solomon says to us here? Well, he underlines for us here the need in the face of such unfairness to simply and quietly trust in the justice of God. And he puts it in two ways. Look at the first, second half of verse 12. He says this. I know, ultimately, that it will go better with God-fearing men. Do you see it? He's encouraging us to trust in God, to to know that God will honor those who look to him, even though it doesn't look like it's going to be like that in this life. But then there is the second side of it, and it's much more somber and difficult. But you see it in verse 13. He says, yet because the wicked do not fear God, ultimately what will happen? What does he say? Ultimately, it will not go well with the wicked. And surely, you see what you've been pointed to there. Do you? The fact that though in this life, it looks like the wicked have got off scot-free. Surely we're being pointed to the fact that it is not like that. That though as they are being lowered into their grave, it looks like they've got it easy and everything is, is wonderful. Solomon is saying ultimately it's not like that. And that in their death they will face the assessment of God. The wicked in their death will face the justice of God. And though you might, and I think many of you will disagree with this, I think that should be of comfort to the people of God. You know, to see that ultimately, when all is said and done, 
that God, our God, is fair. And he is righteous. And he is just. And those who have lived a life rejecting holiness and rejecting a God who would send his son to die for sinners and and, and, and people who have, have spat in the face of God and people like ISIS who will persecute and pursue and kill people for simply saying that they love Jesus. That in the end, that those people will pay for what they have done. It should be of comfort for the people of God. Our God is just. Our God is fair. What do we do when we look around to our society and see the corruption? What do we do? We trust in our God's justice. And then the third thing that we're instructed to do here is we are to rejoice in our gospel's truth. We rejoice in our gospel's truth. If you were in the church this morning, I I wonder if you are seeing almost a similar theme from this morning to tonight. Now this morning, we noted, did we not, how counter-cultural Christianity is. Didn't we? Do you remember this? That we can look to the standards of London, we look to the values of this city, and we say, not so with us. Countercultural. And is it not counterintuitive a bit tonight? You know, we look at corrupt leadership and instead of being up in arms, we are to just simply submit. And we look at a corrupt society and what are we to do? Are we to rebel against it? We are to simply quietly trust in our God. You, you're with me, you're not. It is kind of against the grain, almost counterintuitive. Well, as we end here, what happens is we get to the most dramatically counterintuitive point. Because in verse 14, what Solomon does is remind you of the principles of this world, and it's this, that the wicked very often get what the righteous deserve, the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and what is his, his advice? I'm going to make you look at it, because if if you don't look at it, you'll think I'm making it up, because it is so radical and counterintuitive. What are we to do? Verse 15. The wicked get what the righteous deserve, the righteous get what the wicked deserve. Verse 15, Solomon basically says, so rejoice. The ESV translates it, I commend to you joy. (laughs) In the face of wickedness and fairness, all of it, he says to us, rejoice. And surely you ask with me, how can we do that? Because you understand Solomon is not saying pretend to be happy. He's not saying pretend to be satisfied. He's not saying pretend to have joy. He's saying no, even in the face of this sort of corruption in the world, rejoice as the people of God. How can we have joy? Well, think about it like this. Um, last Sunday night, so communion weekend in Stornoway. And at the end of the weekend, there is what was called a fellowship, which I now know is a sort of almost like a technical name for a type of meeting. Not we're just going to have some fellowship, but there is a fellowship. 
and it works itself out like this, that I will preach at the end of the, the evening. So I, I preach, as I'm doing just now, and then everyone stays behind afterwards, and they get food, sandwiches and so forth, and they go back to the seat, and I've got to come down the front, and uh, I've got to answer questions. Okay, and then... Um, it's great. Nobody seems to leave. So you picture it's 300 people there or more. I don't know, but it was a big crowd. And some of the questions are personal questions. Uh, so just about testimony, call to the ministry, stuff like that. Other questions were, were slightly more theological in nature. The last question was like this. They asked... Uh, me as the visiting minister to give advice and to give advice to the new Christians who had professed faith that weekend. So there had been a number of people, young and old, who had come to faith and had joined the church. And uh, I was asked just as the sort of final thoughts to try and you know give them some advice for the Christian life. So what did I say? I said these things. All right, one, I said, ensure you read the Bible. And notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, ensure you read lots of devotional material alongside a Bible verse. I said, read the Bible. Then I said, to ensure that you pray, not just when things are going really badly, and not just when things are going really well, but consistently and sincerely seek the face of your God in prayer. Three, I said, throw yourself into the life of the church. Don't treat this place as though it is the place where you come to be taught or the place that you even come to worship. But you serve, as we saw this morning. Serve wholeheartedly the people of God. And fourth thing, last thing that I said was this. Witness. Ensure you witness to the majestic, wonderful, amazing grace of God. I said those four things. Now, in light of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, do you see what those things are? Are those things not the means to joy in the Christian life? Is that not true? Reading, prayer, the church, gospel witness, are these not the path and means, the, the, the way to joy for us as Christians? And you see, don't you, why it is that those things are the means to joy? What do they all do? They all bring us as Christians ever nearer Jesus. Isn't that right? You know, we're reading of him. We are praying to him. We are serving him. We are telling other people of him. Why is there joy? These things bring us closer to the one who is the center of our faith, the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And so I end tonight by simply reminding you why there's joy in Jesus Christ and none other. Because what is Jesus? Consider Ecclesiastes 8. What is the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he for us not a king? And a king who is entirely different to all of the politicians and all of the presidents of this age. Isn't he? Isn't he the one who is a righteous king? Yes? And a loving king and a, a calm king and, a, and a, a gracious king, a saving Lord. And what has he done for, for you if you are born again? 
this evening. What has he done? Again, think of Ecclesiastes 8. Here before us at the cross is what? It is a righteous one who was willing to endure what the wicked deserve. Is that not what we see at the cross? A righteous man enduring what the wicked deserve. And why? For you. For you to win you, to free you from your sin. Friends, we uh, live in an unjust world, don't we? And it is a world that is entirely full, it would seem, of corrupt leadership. But I can stand in front of you tonight and I can say, rejoice, rejoice. Why? Because your citizenship isn't here. Your citizenship is in glory and yours is the king of kings. Let's pray.